Hi, I'm Nikki Roach and this is Planet Possible. Hi, I'm Rachel Savage and this is the Watershed Investigations podcast, only not as you know it. So welcome to this special episode that we've created together and that we want to share with listeners of both Planet Possible and Watershed Investigations. And we're covering a topic which certainly here in the UK has been hitting headlines recently, but it isn't a new challenge, highway runoff. So Rachel, tell us why it's so important. Well, National Highways is responsible for around 18,000 outfalls and around 7,700 soakaways that funnel road runoff away from the highways into waterways or to soak into land. And last year at Watershed, we published an investigation with The Guardian that mapped where all those, what National Highways called the most risky outfalls, against sensitive and important rivers and habitats, and found that hundreds of the outfalls are close to or even in environments that have legal environmental protections in place. So they might be triple SIs or chalk streams or whatever. And as we know, the runoff can contain lots and lots of nasty stuff like heavy metals, hydrocarbons, microplastics, and other problematic substances of tire wear. So somebody that knows a lot about this is Joe Bradley, and she is from Stormwater Shepherds. And in this clip, my colleague from Watershed Investigations, Liana Hosier, is interviewing her out on the road network. It's the woods really lovely. It's a really lovely woodland with little squirrels and things. So it's such a shame that this watercourse is polluted. In a little patch of woodland on the edge of the M6 motorway by Preston in Lancashire, I'm meeting Joe Bradley from Stormwater Shepherds, a charity working to restore the health of our waterways. We're literally metres from the M6. You can just see the traffic over there. Joe's keen to show me a highway outfall, where all the rain that washes over the roads, carrying with it all the muck, ends up spilling out. I've never actually seen one, but Joe spends much of her time assessing and monitoring them. Yeah, very much microplastic tire wear particles, um, but also brake dust clutch dust, um, exhaust emissions, unspent fuel coming out of the back of your car, um, fuel oils, lubricating oils, uh, screen wash, ad blue, all the chemicals associated with vehicles. And, you know, when it's just your own vehicle, it's just one car, you don't think, oh, well, it's not very much, but it all adds up, right? Absolutely. If you multiply it up by 114,000 vehicles, you've suddenly got a whole lot of pollution. We're just going to go up this way and we'll see where the motorway discharge comes in. So what you've got here is, is a stream. This is legally a little stream. It's protected in law like every other watercourse in this country. But in the pipes coming under the motorway, you've got the stream in one pipe and then the discharge off the motorway in the other pipe. It's the size of a pond and it's pretty murky. It's like something out of Game of Thrones. It's dark and dense and the trees are growing out of the water because the pool is ever-expanding. Well, it looks more like a cesspool. Last time I was down here, we found bloodworms and water fleas and nothing else. We're in Chorley, in Lancashire. It's come down off the West Pennine Moors. This should be a little babbling stream that supports stoneflies and mainflies and, and freshwater shrimps and leeches and dragonflies and all sorts of aquatic creatures. But it's not, because it's grossly polluted every time it rains with toxins and oil you can actually see the oil on the surface this pipe literally just goes straight into the stream there is no treatment at all the treatment is the stream is it yeah well and absolutely the treatment is sort of happening in this pool but that's illegal because this is a natural watercourse now i know from the analysis that we've done that this contains toxic levels of polyaromatic hydrocarbons and yet we've got creatures watering from this because it's their local source of water so it's just horrific Polyaromatic hydrocarbons, is that definitely from road runoff? Yeah, 
So here, because we're in a rural area, there's no other obvious sources of PAHs. And the, the problem with polyaromatic hydrocarbons, the reason I get so agitated about them, which I do, is that they are, they're truly horrible. So they don't kill the creatures, they mutate them, they cause them to deform at embryonic stage, so they're deformed before they're even fully grown. So they then can't thrive or feed, they can't always reproduce effectively, but also some of the effects of PAHs affect their behaviour. So they become unable to evade predators, they become unable to chase their own prey. So it's a nasty, insidious long-term pollution that, that causes long-term harm to the ecosystem but it doesn't necessarily kill them. And so you might come and do a, a sample on a river and go, well, actually, we found some mayflies and some stoneflies and some freshwater shrimps, so that's okay. But actually, if you were to look under a microscope, they're smaller than they should be. They're not reproducing as effectively as they should be. They're accumulating these poisons within their body flesh, and so then that bioaccumulates up the food chain. But because there's no floating dead fish, nobody really notices and nobody really cares, except you and me. And they are carcinogens as well, aren't they? They cause cancer. Could road runoff potentially harm human health? So theoretically, there is a risk that somebody were to swim. <laughs> you wouldn't swim in here. But if, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> but if you were to swim in a river that had motorway runoff in it, then the, theoretically there could be a risk. I haven't seen any research, either domestically or internationally, on that. But if there is laboratory research to show that if you put it onto the skin of rats and mice, it causes carcinogenic effects and, and cancerous tumours. So we either investigate that risk and manage it, or we make sure that people don't swim in rivers where there is a known source of polyaromatic hydrocarbons. Well, you talk about known source. I mean, how many of these are there around the country? Oh, crikey, now you're asking. So National Highways know they've got 18,000. Well, I know this one isn't on their list, so this is 18,001. So I think they've got a lot more than they think they've got. But National Highways only operate 3% of the road network. So then if you consider all the other 97% of the roads, there's probably a million of them, we think, nationally, going from big ones like this to teeny-weeny little ones in the countryside. They don't all need treatment, but we need to acknowledge that they're all there and they're all causing pollution. They might not need treatment, but no one knows because they're not being tested. They're not being monitored, are they? No. So National Highways did some monitoring between 10 and 15 years ago and built a model so that they can model the risk from these outfalls. So since then, they haven't done any monitoring. And the Environment Agency have never done any monitoring of this problem, apart from some very small projects over the years. I've done some, both when I was at the agency and since I've left the agency. I've done more since I left the agency. Well, quickly tell us, what agency were you working for, Jo? I was at the Environment Agency for over 25 years. I did pollution prevention for most of that time. Urban pollution prevention was my primary topic, and I got really fixed on road runoff and the pollution from road runoff. So, Was anyone else interested in that were you a lone voice in the environment agency I, I was often a lone voice in the environment agency on a number of topics um, I definitely had trouble getting people to pay attention to pollution from road runoff because we had very little data and also because this sort of pollution has no funding streams highway authorities don't pay for permits so there's no income associated with these discharges and none of the money that comes in through road tax or fuel tax comes to the environment agency. So it's a chicken and egg, isn't it? There's no money, so they won't investigate. But without investigating, they don't understand the problem, so they can't generate any money. So we were in a difficult situation and nothing happened. 
But tell me about the investigations that you've been doing now that you've left the Environment Agency and you tested this one and you've got the results with you. Talk me through what you found in this murky cesspool. All of the polyaromatic hydrocarbons for which there is an environmental quality standard failed that environmental quality standard. And they were quite dramatic failures for benzo-GHI perylene. The standard is 0.0082 parts per billion. But this sample that we took had 1.15 parts per billion of benzo-GHI perylene in there. I mean, these may not seem like huge amounts, but their toxicity means that even at these levels, they can be harmful to aquatic life. The standards are set based on the toxicity of these pollutants in order to protect the health of the river life and we are failing those standards quite significantly every time it rains at every one of these outfalls pretty much. You've got lots of heavy metals in there as well. There's probably a cocktail effect of all these heavy metals and petrochemicals that you are measuring here. These samples always fail for dissolved copper and dissolved zinc and those again are both toxic to aquatic life. They normally come from sort of the brake pads of the car, isn't it? So the brake pads of the cars and tyres as well, so they're in the tyre composition as well, so they can be included in the tyre wear, microplastic tyre wear particles. The one thing we don't measure is microplastic tyre wear particles because the laboratory methodology isn't really mature enough to be simple and cheap. It's, it would be very expensive, but we know that road runoff like this is the biggest terrestrial source of microplastic particles in oceans so you know this little outfall in the outskirts of Chorley is contributing microplastic particles all the way down here into Sidbrook into the River Douglas into the River Ribble and then out into the sea and contributing to the harm in ocean life as well we just don't measure that yet but that's just the UK and this is a global problem and nobody's actually globally doing very much about this. Yeah, I was going to say is anyone doing this right and what would what would a good highway outfall look like? nobody's doing this right yet Uh, what would a good highway outfall look like well the first thing to do is capture the sediment because the sediment carries with it most of the pollution so the bits off your brakes the bits off your tires um, a lot of the polyaromatic hydrocarbons are stuck to those bits so if you can capture the sediment that's a huge step forward well national highways would probably say that they are going to be doing some cleanup, some remediation and sorting out some of these highway outfalls. I think it's only four this year, but tell me what do you think of their plans and what they're doing? Yeah, so four outfalls in one year is, is not good enough when you've got 18,000 outfalls, so they're not going fast enough. And we sometimes see schemes that are too small, it doesn't have enough capacity to capture the sediment so that they will fill up very quickly and stop working and they don't maintain the systems that they already have so there's one just up the road of here from here and if you walk down the access road it's got mature trees growing in it so nobody has driven down there to maintain that device for at least 10 years probably more so what's the point of building these multi-million pound treatment schemes and then not maintaining them so i mean do you think it's just that one that's not been maintained or you you think it's more widespread is this something you've looked into i've been to quite a lot of highway outfall treatment schemes and a lot of them well all the ones i saw last year have not been maintained in accordance with their proper maintenance schedule so all the water separator for example once it's full it stops working and the ones we looked at last year were full full to the top you might want to have a message for national highways and the environment agency what could they be doing what should they be doing 
I, I mean, I, I know you talked about your sort of ideal kind of highway outfall, but having worked in the agency and knowing kind of the culture and the various kind of pulls to the purse string of, of the multiple environmental pressures um, that the country is facing, what would you say to them? So these, these outfalls are polluted there's no question about that nobody else would be allowed to discharge this into a water environment without a permit and therefore without the appropriate regulatory control the agency don't do that because there is no funding stream for it but you need to fix that so if you were to make the highway authorities apply for permits for the most polluting of these outfalls say the say the most polluting 3000 taking a number off the top of my head then they would have to pay for those permit applications which would generate an income stream for the environment agency to then monitor those discharges and check for compliance against the permit by doing that you would generate an industry around the treatment of highway runoff and most of the manufacturers and designers are British so it would help the British manufacturing sector if you selected and purchased and installed some of their devices so that would again generate income through tax revenue and I think ultimately you'd have to add either an element of, of cost to car tax or to fuel duty to create a fund to deliver more treatment schemes. And the more we do, the better we'll get at it, the quicker we'll get at it, the cheaper we will get at it, and therefore it'll, it'll self-generate it's a sort of rolling programme of delivery. There are some really good examples of treatment schemes on new build roads, uh, particularly with local authorities in Cheshire and Lancashire. So it can be done, and we need to stop saying... We can't do it and we won't do it and we need to start saying how can we do it and get on with it. And then one day, maybe this murky brown pool will again turn into a beautiful running stream. I hope so. I, I hope so. I, and it's not beyond the wit of man to take this discharge pipe, move it somewhere else, treat it and let this stream return to its little babbling brook status. On my way back to the train station, Joe drove me on one of the brand new smart motorways. It's difficult to calculate the total the government has spent on upgrading the highway network so far, but it's committed to £900 million to improve safety. With all the money for upgrades, I wanted to know if they're also investing in some highway pollution treatment. Yeah, so this is the M6 near Junction 22 and it's the smart motorway programme, so they are upgrading this stretch of the M6 into a smart motorway, so all four lanes will become running lanes, so there will be no hard shoulder and they have eradicated the grass section in the central reservation and replaced it with concrete surface and a vertical concrete barrier. And then they've put concrete slip form drainage channels along the motorway length. The problem with that is that they have increased the surface area of the motorway, the impermeable surface area of the motorway, by getting rid of the grass in the central reservation and potentially extending the width of the motorway and putting in the emergency refuge areas, but they haven't introduced any treatment systems for that pollution. So there was already a problem with pollution from this motorway surface going into the local water environment and now they've made it worse and they still haven't done anything about treating the runoff into the water environment. So it's a, this is a multi-million pound investment in upgrading the motorway and yet they haven't upgraded the drainage infrastructure from a pollution point of view at all. Well, I don't know what you think, Nikki, but I think that's quite a damning testimony. And I think it's pretty amazing that those sites that have for so long seem to have been ignored, all these outfalls, or if not ignored, then they're certainly not being maintained. And that, you know, even 
chalk streams are being affected. And none of England's rivers meet legal standards for chemical quality. And looking at this, it's really not that surprising. Yeah, I think what I was struck by, I think, really, is that it feels like it's flown under the radar. And we hear a lot about pollution from sewage in watercourses. I mean, that's all over the press, isn't it? Now you can have a conversation with anybody and as soon as they know that you're involved in water, that's the thing they want to talk about. I think agriculture is certainly on the radar, but it certainly feels to me that highways is something that we don't hear as much about and absolutely as you said from what joe described i mean it sounded awful doesn't it i think you know objectively awful so really helpful to hear from joe about kind of the environmental impact that we're seeing so i shared joe's interview with stephen elderkin stephen is the director of environmental sustainability at national highways and national highways look after three percent of the road network but a huge percentage of the traffic that travels on those roads so let's hear from steve Steve, welcome to Planet Possible. It's lovely to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me, Nikki. Great to be here. So we just heard the interview from Joe Bradley. Give us your initial reflections on what you heard. I come away from it really feeling how important the management of road runoff and pollution of water is and just how passionately people feel about the impact that that pollution has on the water environment and and the health of our ecosystems. I thought it was a really interesting piece. Yeah, there's definitely plenty of passion around the topic. And I think it's great that we're hearing it now increasingly in mainstream media and that there's a spotlight being shone on it, really. And we know from looking at environment agency data that around 18% of water quality failures in England are coming from urban and diffuse pollution, which includes highway runoff, alongside then agriculture and sewerage. So give us a bit of a feel from a, a National Highways perspective about what you know about what's in that runoff, things like microplastics. What level of, of understanding have you got? So we undertook a 13-year research programme with the Environment Agency between 1997 and 2010. And we did some extensive monitoring across the country and looked at what were the pollutants coming out of the end of our outfalls and soakaways. And it's a mixture of polyaromatic hydrocarbons, heavy metals and other toxic substances. More recently, we've been concerned that there also is growing interest around microplastics and the particles from tyres. We've already run two phases of research and we've got a third phase about to go live, again working with the Environment Agency, monitoring microplastic pollution so that we can better understand the chemicals that are coming off our roads. And Joe talked about whether the runoff from highways generally should be permitted. Has National Highways got a view on whether that's the right direction of travel? We would really like to see the resources that that we've got spent on improving water quality. And there is a risk with an extensive permitting regime. So we've got 18,000 outfalls and soakaways. The administrative costs of permitting all of those would would be very high indeed. And actually, perhaps those resources would be better placed improving the management of the water and reducing the pollution going into the watercourses. It's a matter for DEFRA and the Environment Agency what the permitting regime is. At the moment, we have a, a right to discharge, but we have no right to pollute. And so it's for us to own that responsibility and manage the impact of our road runoff on the receiving water bodies. There is an administrative burden. We see that certainly with my water sector hat on. There's a huge amount of effort that goes into permits, but also there's a visibility that that then gives, isn't there? And it also generates the revenue to then fund the regulator to do more. So I think you can you can see it from both perspectives. I hear what you're saying, but I also hear from a 
from Joe's perspective that needing to know what's in those discharge points and the impact that that's having on the environment is important too. So Joe talked about the risk assessment tool and, and you talked about that briefly. Tell us a little bit more about how that works really and how that's then leading into your plan moving forward, what you're going to do. The risk assessment tool was built off the back of that 13-year monitoring programme that I mentioned previously. It takes some parameters for a particular outfall, the size of the catchment area, the nature of the treatment, if there is any at the end of the the pipe, and the characteristics of the receiving water body. And then it assesses the risk that the road runoff will exceed or compromise good water quality. It's grounded in all that empirical work and all that monitoring, and it allows us to look at the network and prioritise those outfalls where we think the risk is elevated. Is that a tool that is fairly static or is it something that you're continually improving and updating as you get more and more data as to what is going on out in your network? So the microplastics research that we're doing now will give us more information and that will be used to improve the tool. If there are findings from that 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 are useful, we'll refine it. We're really open to new information. Have we got evidence that the the characteristics are different? We haven't had the risk assessment right in the past. We'll revisit. So the judgment is not static. And one of the things we're doing at the moment is running the assessment, rerunning the assessment for over 1,200 outfalls across our network where we we think there might be a high risk. There are still locations which we are uh, having pointed out to us that that aren't in our database and of course we'll incorporate those and run a a risk assessment and consider evidence of pollution where where it comes up. It sounds like there's there's some good work going on to improve. It sounds like you're really open which is brilliant to new information. Tell us a little bit more about what the plan does look like because I I know that National Highways work on a five-year investment cycle very similar to the water sector in fact so I guess you're coming towards the end of one of those and looking ahead to the next one. So what what does that look like when we think about water quality? Where does it sort of sit in your priority list? This plan came out of an Environment Audit Committee meeting in 2021. Our Chief Executive gave evidence and in 2022 recommendations were made that we did more and that we addressed all the high-risk outfalls across our network by 2030. So this is a scaling up of the programme. We've been doing some good things like Stover Park in Devon where we've had some great improvements in, in biodiversity and ecosystems as a result of a flagship scheme. But it's been fractions of the work that actually needed to be done. And so I think we now have the mandate, the recommendation from the EAC. The plan is to address all our high-risk outfalls by by 2030. And and so what does that look like? We need to verify where those high-risk outfalls are, and then we need to design the solutions. We need to get the planning and permission in place, and then we need to deliver those solutions. And For a typical location, once we've decided it's high risk and it needs some work and upgrading, then that's a two to three year process to to the point where where the mitigation is delivered. For some, it will be more complex. So you need to buy land, issues around permissions, and then you might be looking at a couple of years longer before the scheme is delivered. So for us at the moment, the plan looks like a huge amount more work, but it won't emerge yet as more delivery on the ground. So we are going through as fast as we can the locations that we've identified that could be high risk. Um, Our plan that we published 
last May said that we would uh, we would complete that verification process by March 25. I'm actually confident that we will get through that by this summer. So we're running as fast as we can on that process. We're currently appointing a technical partner to increase our capacity to design and to do some assurance work for us on the work that we've done around the verification. And I'm expecting that we will have design work underway for at least 100 of the locations around the network by the end of March 25. And I keep talking about March 25 because that's the end of our current five-year funding cycle. And then we're into the next five-year funding cycle. And I'm bidding there for the money to build the mitigation solutions for what we think is going to be about 250 locations across the network. I'm confident that everyone involved in the next five-year investment plan understands the importance of water quality and that, that our obligation to not pollute and the recommendation that was accepted from the Environmental Audit Committee. So I'm very optimistic that we will have the funding in that next five-year funding settlement to deliver the mitigations. So at the moment, we're really ramping up the programme, ready to have a, a scale-up of delivery in that next five-year settlement. I, I guess the other thing that I would mention is this is largely an issue of our ageing and existing assets. So we updated our standards for constructing new roads back in 2010, that was also informed by the risk tool and all the monitoring that we've done. And I think we are confident that new build schemes are appropriately mitigating the risk of water pollution from road runoff. And as we have some further new enhancement projects going through onto site, they will, in the process of building the new schemes, address some historic high-risk outfalls. There's a scheme in Essex, the A12 Chelmsford to A120 scheme. It got its planning permission in January. When that goes on site, we think that will mitigate 30 high-risk outfalls along the length of that section. So quite a significant contribution to the 250 will come from some of the enhancement schemes that we've we've got coming. But we're really setting ourselves up to have this production process to systematically deliver the improvements where we've identified a high risk of, of pollution. I mean, what you're about is building roads fundamentally. And so I'm wondering culturally, how is the environment being handled within the organisation? Are you on a bit of a journey here, I guess, really? Is water new to you guys thinking about that? And is it a priority for you guys yet? Actually, we're not about building roads. So our purpose is to connect the country. You know, if you look at what the definition of sustainable development is from the Brundtland Commission, it's meeting the needs of today without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. And meeting the needs of today, actually, roads are utterly vital for a prosperous country. And we have nine times as much freight travelling by road as by rail. This is how you get your essentials, your baked beans and your loo rolls. It comes on the road. Four million journeys a day is how you go on holiday. The flexibility of the journeys that roads allow cannot be matched. So there's some things that roads do really well and are vital for the country. And sustainable development means meeting those needs as well as thinking about the environmental legacy that we're leaving. We published our environmental sustainability strategy back in May last year and the strap line was a connected country, a thriving environment. And I think that's, again, trying to get that point of 
we can't turn off the roads. We need to continue to connect the country, but we need to think about that environmental legacy. I've been in this role for about two years, and it's the first time the company has had a director-level post related to the environment, and that reflects the fact that it has become more central to us as a as a company. There's sort of three big areas, really. There's making the transition to net zero highways, there's being positive for nature, and there's tackling local environmental pollution, ever reducing it uh, for the benefit of communities. I don't know, I had a session, an hour and a half, with the top 70 people in national highways last week and got them to think about why the environment matters. Why does it matter to them? Why does it matter to the company? Great to have them all sat there thinking about the why. why. Why does environment matter? And there was a huge amount of passion and engagement in the room. And I think people connect with this because they've got kids, because they worry about the future. They're seeing the headlines around climate change. We're a bunch of people that care too, and we want to be part of something positive. It's also important for the licence to operate for the company. So we're not going to get investment if we are not part of contributing positively to objectives around the environment. So I'm confident that board, exec, senior leaders throughout the company, there is a real passion for transforming our environmental sustainability. It's nationally significant. You know, a lot of greenhouse gases come from roads. There is air pollution, noise pollution, water pollution. We own a lot of land, 30,000 hectares, the size of the Isle of Wight. And the opportunity for us to have a positive impact on the environment is enormous, I think. I mean, it sounds like it's one of your three pillars, local environmental pollution. Well, that's great to hear. And it sounds like there's a commitment absolutely to doing more. Is it fast enough, do you think? So I can understand the frustration looking at progress. There isn't a huge amount of delivery in the next 12 months or so. And bear with us, we need to ramp this programme up. And if we're going to systematically deliver the recommendation of addressing all our high-risk outfalls, we need to establish the programme, we need to do the design work, we need to get the permissions, build the capacity in our supply chain to deliver it. We are going to get there and we will get there by 2030. I point to the fact that we're running ahead on the verification compared to where we said we would be. Bear with us, delivery at the other end will come. uh, And I know uh, it can feel to some that there's not enough on the ground happening, but but it will will emerge in the the early years of the next five-year funding settlement. I mean, there's so many similarities from what I hear from you, Steve, and what I'm experiencing in the water sector, certainly in England. And many of our listeners will work in the water sector, work in the environment space, work in agriculture. It's those three, isn't it? It's agrig, it's water sector and it's highways that are contributing to the impact on our water courses. Are there opportunities for more collaboration between those three sectors, do you think, to solve some of these really big water quality challenges? I think absolutely, particularly in the biodiversity space and the flood management space. We ran a pilot for nature-based flood management in a couple of catchment areas and we're just going through the evaluation of that but we had great engagement from local landowners and farmers who planted trees and dug ditches and put in leaky dams and ponds and that sort of slows the flow of water onto our network that's good for safety but it's also good for stress on the on the drainage asset and instead of hard engineering to achieve 
that you've got something that also stores carbon and is good for biodiversity. And we're still at the early stages of the evaluation. Everything I've seen is really positive and I'm, I'm keen to see that scale up as well in the next five years. We've got a commitment to plant three million trees, finding adjacent landownings that are keen to plant woodland. That again helps us with, with flood management and also carbon storage and meeting our three million tree commitment. So yeah, I think there's lots of potential to work together. Never thought about safety. So really, of course, it's really obvious. Yeah, slowing the flow of water means you're not getting runoff all over your all over your roads at the same time, but also good for water quality. Lots of co-benefits, I think, really. So a final question for you, Steve, before I let you go, and I ask all my guests this. So we have the Planet Possible Magic Wand. I'm going to pass it across to you. If you could make anything possible in this space, go as, as big and bold or as specific as you want, what would you make possible? First best is to address this pollution at source. Can we have some wonderful new tyre compounds that don't break up? Can we hasten the move to electric vehicles and the reduction of the hydrocarbons that are used in our vehicles? Might even wave it and say, could we have a wonderful IT app that meant ride sharing was easier and therefore reduce the number of vehicles on our network? That would help me on my carbon targets as well. So what can we do to reduce this at source? Meanwhile, we'll get on and do the stuff that we need to do at the other end of the pipe. Source control. That's a good one. It's a big one to cover. Steve, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Really enjoyed our conversation. Real pleasure. Thanks for your time. So, Rachel, I'm not sure your reflections, but certainly one of the things that I took away from listening to Steve was this question of whether we should be doing more monitoring and the role that permitting has to play or, or doesn't, as the case may be at the moment. And I definitely heard what Steve said about wanting to spend that money that would be an administrative burden improving assets. But I'm also torn by the fact that if you don't monitor and you don't regulate, arguably, A, how do you fund a regulator that's got teeth? And also, how do you know how much of the problem you're actually you're solving? So I was left feeling like I really want to hear a bit more about monitoring and kind of regulation in that space. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'd also question whether... National Highways is really going as fast as it can. I think only a handful of their assets are going to be addressed this year. And there's some doubt over the actual number of outfalls that they have anyway. So there's a massive amount of work ahead of them, which really needs to be expedited if they're ever going to get uh, you know, any improvement in place and we're going to improve our rivers. Yeah, Steve definitely said, bear with us. I understand that on a practical point, but it's really hard to hear as well, isn't it? When you think back to that interview that we had with Joe at the beginning. So we've heard about the environmental impact from Joe. We've heard about the current plans from National Highways from Steve, the asset owner. That was really helpful. But there is another really important voice to bring into this conversation and that's the voice of the regulator. And so both Rachel and I were delighted to be joined by Helen Wakeham and Helen is the Director of Water for the Environment Agency which is the Environmental Regulator here in England. So let's hear what Helen had to say. Welcome Helen to this special episode of Planet Possible and Watershed Investigations. It's great to have you with us. It's lovely to be here. I am so happy to be talking about something different on water quality. I spend most of my life working on sewage and you know the fact that somebody wants to talk about urban and transport issues is brilliant. Really pleased to be here. Great. Well, let's get started, really. Give us a bit of a feel for the relationship between the Environment Agency and National Highways and the kind of responsibilities between your two organisations. Well, the Environment Agency is the environmental regulator. We've got lots of uh, responsibilities for environmental regulation, as you know. We also understand the water environment so we've got a, a science and evidence function and we monitor the water environment so all sorts of reasons why we'd want to talk to national highways national highways are responsible for 
their road outfalls. Now, it, it, they're in an interesting position because they own, I think, it's something like 3% of the road network, but most of the traffic. And I think some seventeen or 18,000 road outfalls discharge into the water environment. So there's quite a lot of reason for them to think about water as well. The principal route by which we talk to National Highways is through the road investment strategy, which is just coming up to its third cycle. And that's the opportunity for National Highways to invest in water quality and the impact of their outfalls. And, and that's the conversation that we have with them. I guess the other thing to say is that at a local level, we do talk to National Highways and, and the other highways authorities, who I think there are about 100, about local issues. So there's lots of touch points between us and transport. Yeah, as well as that kind of regulatory five-year cycle. So when I think about water quality in the round, my brain splits things into three, really. You know, we've got agriculture, we've got kind of the water sector, and then we've got this urban and, and diffuse pollution transport. And It'd be really interesting to understand from an environment agency perspective, are your levels of resources split a third, a third, a third? Is is highway something that's as much a focus, <laughs> you know? How does that work? No, they're not. It's a really, it's, it's a cracking question. So we are funded through water quality charges for a lot of work that we do on water quality. Those charges come about 80% from the water industry and about 20% from other permit holders so that piece of work is resourced and, and and you may be aware that we're consulting at the moment on increasing our water quality permit charges which will is really important for us because that'll help us to build our regulatory capacity particularly with the water industry for agriculture we get government grants and that drives a degree of regulation and advice for farmers and we work also with Natural England on giving advice to farmers. The work we do in the urban environment is not funded and so we use a certain amount of national resource to talk to national highways so I choose to do that to make sure that we can input to the road investment strategy and then at a local level what happens is we work in partnerships, so the catchment-based approach has got 107 catchment partnerships, many of those operate in urban environments, and they're where we bring together the water utilities, national highways, local authorities, local environmental charities to enable us to pool resource, if you like, to work in an urban environment, and some of that goes into roads. Uh, hi, Helen. Just as we're talking about resources, I saw that the Environment Agency Chair, Alan Lovell, announced that the agency is going to take on about 500 extra new people to increase regulation of the water industry and said it's going to look at making about 4,000 more, more inspections and 11,000 the year after. And it's going to restore the position to something like the EA was 10 to 15 years ago. Those are his words. I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Is that all going to focus on the, the water industry or will it move over to agriculture as well? And you said it's not funded for urban and road, but would there be an improvement as a result of that? It'd be really interesting to hear a bit more about them and whether they would have enforcement powers as well. Brilliant. Lots. There's lots of questions in there. So it's, it's, it's a really exciting week, I think, for water quality. So the chairman, Alan Lovell, was speaking at the uh, National Farmers Union conference. So he was talking about what we're investing in uh, agriculture. So over the course of this financial year, there'll be more than 4000 inspections of farms. And we know that when we visit farms, we find problems, but where we we find those problems, they are addressed. So that's a really big boost to water quality. On the water industry side, we're consulting and increasing our charges. If that charge consultation goes to plan, that means we'll have 500 more people over the next few years working on principally water industry regulation. That will be 4,000 
inspections next financial year and then as you say building up to 10,000 and it's not just boots on the ground it will also be huge investment in our digital capability and capacity which will enable us to make sure that the work that we do and the regulatory work we do is directed into the right place now the way the charges work they are for our assessment permitting and our assessment of compliance so it only takes us to the point that if something goes wrong, we can't use that resource to enforce. But we're also expecting more money from government to enable us to enforce where we need to. But actually, the purpose of regulation is to stop something going wrong in the first place. And I think that level of oversight will enable us to do that. And then your sub question was about, well, will this help us in the urban environment? And yes, it will, because there's, there's so much happening at the moment, which will help. So water companies now are obliged to produce drainage and wastewater management plans and they help us, they help the water industry to understand what is going on in drainage networks in their patch. Our contribution to that work can be funded through charges and that will enable us to get a better understanding of what's going on in the urban environment. So does that mean a big slug of cash for us to work on transport issues? No, but does it help us to better understand the water environment? Does it help us to contribute to those catchment partnerships? Yes, it does. So, yeah, it's really good news. At World Water Tech Conference, I made exactly the point that you've raised, Nikki. This is not all about the water industry. There's that balance between what agriculture contributes to the problem, what's coming from urban environments and what's coming from the water industry. And getting that back into the public consciousness and the political consciousness, I think, is really important. And do you have a feel for what proportion of that money might be spent on frontline roles as opposed to sort of that in-house digital work that you were talking about? It'll change over time. To bring in 500 new people takes a while. As we bring people into our local teams to do the frontline work, we'll also be investing in our digital. So for the next couple of years, you will see more investment in digital and resources will gradually then transfer to the, the frontline when we built those digital tools. So it will be really dynamic. And what we want to see is the water industry responding and complying with environmental law. And as that happens, again, the balance between what, we, what we want our people to be doing will change. It would be great, wouldn't it, to get to a place where we're working in a collaborative space and properly improving the water environment rather than checking for compliance all the time. So to an extent, the way the Environment Agency looks will be driven by the water industry's response to our regulation. And just sort of back to the highways again, it'd be interesting to know how much the Environment Agency knows about... National Highway's 18,000-plus outfalls and soakaways, they appear to have been largely ignored by National Highways in terms of maintenance, at least. So what kind of information does the Environment Agency hold on them and the sort of pollution issue that they present? Well, we don't monitor road outfalls routinely because we're not funded to do it. And actually, if you take the seventeen or 18,000 that National Highways have and then think about the number that other highways authorities have, we're into hundreds and thousands of outfalls. So do we monitor outfalls specifically? No. Do we pick up the sort of substances that might arise from road outfalls in our national monitoring programme? Yes, we do. So we understand that the road network has an impact on the water environment. And as we say, you know, it's about 18% for urban and transport issues, which is actually increasing. We the last, the last time we looked at it in 2015, it was only about 11%. So you can see that as 
issues in the water industry are tackled and there has been significant impact in the water industry. But as population increases, etc., you can see that impact in the urban environment growing. And that matters, doesn't it? Because that's where most of us live. There is a tendency for the loudest voices in the water environment to be talking about very lovely places and be talking the Wye and Windermere. And actually, where most people live and the local environment that most impacts them is the local urban one. So I do think that that understanding that urban issues have an impact both on the environment and on people's lives is really important. So Watershed did some work last year that was published in The Guardian just mapping all the outfalls and showing that a lot of these discharge into protected areas, you know, triple SIs and some even flowing into some of these chalk streams. And doesn't that undermine a little bit the work that you're trying to do in improving rivers and also environmental designations that are put there to protect these areas? Well, what we would expect is that national highways in their work would start to focus on areas of the greatest risk so we know that they've got a risk management tool which is enabling them to focus on I think they're planning for 250 high risk outfalls and we would expect that that risk assessment took those designations into account. To be honest with you we don't know exactly what's in that risk assessment and it's it's a question that we want to ask National Highways about how they're doing that. My sense is that They've made a commitment to 250 in response to the Environmental Audit Committee. It's great. It's brilliant to see that focus because we haven't had it before. But I would expect them, I would want to see them going further and faster, particularly to protect those special places, Rachel. I guess really the last couple for me, I'm really interested in what next, really. And that was something that we put to Steve as well from Highways. Have you got a sense of what the future could look like in terms of management of this this kind of transport and urban pollution and I might even be so cheeky as to offer you the planet possible magic wand that I quite often offer to guests and sort of say you know if you'd like to give it a wave what what do you think is coming and what and also what would you like to see really from this sort of highways runoff perspective the problem is I think with water quality and I'm looking at you Nikki and I'm looking at you Rachel and what you write about you need more than three wishes with your magic wand don't you for water quality because the issues are so complex and they're so multidisciplinary there's a few things for me from a national highways perspective really showing that leadership for all highways authorities so having said that there might be hundred thousand outfalls out there which have a greater or lesser impact on the environment we need to tackle more than 250 so what does that asset creation that mitigation that asset maintenance look like for all highways so i would like to see that i would really like to see more focus on source control because often that that highway is it's a vector for pollution coming from somewhere else and as with every everything to do with pollution what's the source of this pollution so is there something to do with road design vehicle and tire design that starts to stop these pollutants actually hitting the outfall in the first place i spend nearly all of my life talking about end of pipe and that's not where the problem arises. So, so what do we do about that? And I think then what about those urban, other urban sources? I think we talk about combined drainage systems and storm overflows and we talk about separating rainwater from storm drainage. What we're talking about here in terms of highway outfalls is separated drainage. We absolutely need to tackle at source. We can't just assume that separating our drains is a panacea. And then I guess my final one is that, is that partnership. That CABA partnership, CABA have done a brilliant piece of work. They've done a sort of working manual for catchment partnerships in urban areas. 
which explain how to work in partnership and how to bring different interests together in an urban area to improve water quality. So I'd like to see a lot more of that and communities. My magic wand, I think, is communities feeling that they've got their own traction and they can get involved in water quality locally. I just wanted to ask Helen, because I mean, you were saying that there's no money for sort of um, looking at after these highways because they're not permitted and therefore you haven't got the income for it. Do you think that they should be permitted? I was talking to a lawyer a while ago who was saying that the EA has actually got the power to bring highways, drains and discharges under environmental permitting if they involve discharge into fresh waters that might be poisonous, noxious or polluting. I think the, that's, the, that's the wording. And they're saying that it looks to be the case. So why hasn't the uh, agency made that move with the agency? And, and do, so do you think generally they could be or should be permitted? So we do have the power. So could they be? Yes, they could. But we've already described national highways alone having 18,000 of these things. So where I would go to step back from what the purpose of permitting is to enable the control of pollution. And actually, if we permit something which is a passive system, we create the bureaucracy of permitting, but without actually investing in the solution. And if we think about the cost of permitting, and it's public money, isn't it? You know, regardless of it coming via national highways, it's public money. I'd much rather that public money was invested straight into solution and mitigating the problem. So, yes, we could, but I don't think we should because I don't think it's the most efficient and effective way to get the control that we want. And the other thing you said was about... Um not fully knowing how national highways put together their risk assessments for these outfalls, which I thought was quite surprising. Should that be something that they're collaborating with you on, that they're consulting on with you, because you're being the experts in the area? Yeah, it'd be great to see their risk assessment tool in more detail. But as I said, essentially within the Environment Agency, this is unfunded work. So what we want is for national highways to get on with it. We don't want to be in a position where we have to show them how to do it, if you like. They're responsible for their outfalls. Thank you so much. Right. Well, I think we've we've covered everything we want to, which is brilliant. Helen, thank you for taking the time to talk to us and, and being so clear, really, about what, what the situation is and what the future is. And I'm nodding vigorously with your three wishes with the magic wand as well, really. So great to have you on both this Planet Possible and Watershed Investigation special. And it's lovely to see you both. Thank you. It was great to be able to put some of those questions to Helen, but I'm not 100% convinced that there's going to be significant improvement without some form of permitting or other kind of regulatory oversight and accountability in place looking at the outfalls. Permitting would also raise money for the Environment Agency, which has got to help it on, on a lot of fronts. So I don't know if I'm convinced by the arguments, but it is good to hear that there is more resource going to the agency and that the two will work together. Yeah, and I think thinking positively actually about what we did hear from Helen, there was a huge amount of passion and enthusiasm and positivity from Helen about the fact that this topic is now getting the airtime that I think she feels like it deserves, which is useful. I agree with you, your points around funding a regulator that can then be effective is really important. I was really pleased to hear Steve from National Highways talking about the opportunities to work across some of the silos. You know, we talk about agriculture, the water sector and highways being the three major contributors to water quality and poor water quality in, in some cases. Actually looking for opportunities to do more collaboratively feels like the right direction of travel. So it's great to hear that National Highways really see water as a priority in a way that perhaps historically it hasn't been. So some chinks of positivity in there, Rachel, but at the same time, there's a lot to do is what it feels like. 
So, I think that's probably it for us, isn't it? We've covered a lot of ground today. Hopefully, you've enjoyed listening to this collaboration between Planet Possible and Watershed. That's it for now from Planet Possible. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. And from Watershed Investigations, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>